Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. Hey there, listeners. I just re-listened to my conversation with Fleur Larson that you're going to hear in this episode. And I was reminded of why I was so touched by it and by her words and by her insights when we originally had this conversation, which was now a couple months ago. It isn't the easiest or not the easiest. Maybe this might not be the most comfortable episode for folks to listen to. And when I say folks, I really do mean my white listeners. Um, I, of course, am a white woman and that's how I come at this work. And one of the things that's important when you're thinking about external marketing and messaging is your own implicit bias because that gets, you know, it's an ingredient in the marketing and the messaging that you that you produce and that you put out to the world. So being aware of that is something that I integrated into my classes on marketing. You're going to hear about that. And so I'm, th- this is a more personal episode than some of the past. I share some of my journey. Dr. Ibrahim Kendi invites us to think about anti-racism work as a verb rather than a noun, which I appreciate because we're just all works in progress in general as humans. And that's also true about this work around racism and anti-racism. We define some terms, which I think is so, so, so important. I learned a new etymological gem. I'm going to get very excited about that at the beginning of the episode. So, so there's that. I just, you know, I hope that you'll keep your ears open and your hearts open and your minds open to this. And even if it is, like I said, not the most comfortable of the episodes, it's important, right, to, to be able to name it. And Fleur, uh, you know, reminds us of that as well. If you haven't already listened to the episode with Marlette Jackson and Aaron Dowell about woke washing, that is a good pairing with this episode. You don't need to listen to them in sequence, but there's, there are definitely some, some things to relate it. So an invitation there to go and listen to that if you haven't already. All right. I don't want to keep you from it. Oh, I will say, I really want to continue this conversation. I have an open dialogue. And one of the best ways to do that is to get on Quaxon's newsletter because I send out things regularly and then you just get reply to them. So if you haven't already, please sign up so we can stay in conversation. Quaxonmarketing.com backslash newsletter. Yeah. I really look forward to hearing your thoughts on this, your feelings about it. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Fleur Larson. Welcome to the show, Fleur. I'm super glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, yeah. I was looking on your website in preparation for this, and I learned something about language that I didn't know prior, oh, which is what? that because, well, on your homepage, you shared that the root of the word facilitation is from the Latin word facilis, facilis, not quite sure on that, meaning to make easy. Mm-hmm. So it was fun to learn that. That feels particularly meaningful given the work you do, since a lot of that is not easy. And I just, one, that was a fun fact. I, yeah. You know how I love etymology. Did you pick that word intentionally because of that? Mm, no, probably just reverse of like, I 
got my origin, my start facilitation when I was doing outdoor ed and we were called facilitators, challenge course oh. facilitators. And then I learned the origin of the word and, you know, less of the focus of like to make it the experience easy, but to make it easy to do the work that we need to be doing. Ah, oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. One thing I noticed in your bio that you don't mention is that you were the founder of Skate Like a Girl. I understand why it doesn't make it into the short bio. I get it. You have, you've done a lot of things, but it made me a little sad because let's be honest, that's still like very, very cool. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Co-founder with a couple other folks and, and people are, that are running it now are doing amazing things. So I'm excited that they're still into it. So yeah, it was a great chapter in my life. Was, I'm like so grateful I got to be a part of it. Yeah. Very cool. You sent out an email recently about a workshop you're hosting called The Language of Racism. And this, that subject line obviously captured my attention. And I want to get to talking about the, like, substantively the workshop. Before we get there, though, it's so important to have shared vocabulary in general, but especially for some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about on this episode. And so I was hoping we could start by going through some, just walking through some key terms and that are going to come up and that all of us have probably heard, but it's possible we have different definitions and that's fine. I'm not saying there's like one definition for any of these things, but just to offer a way that you, as somebody who works deeply in this field, thinks about them. So, and just so the folks know where we're coming from as we move through the conversation. Does that sound okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's start with racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one thing that's important to notice about the word racism and the definition is it really being about power plus prejudice, right? Or prejudice plus power. So anyone can be, can discriminate against anyone. Anyone can be an asshole to anyone, right? Like that's equal opportunity. It's really about when you map it to power and, and so there's institutional power and then systemic power. So when we have prejudice plus power, then that helps us understand why there isn't reverse racism towards white people. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So it's not just like one race of a person discriminating against another race, like, you know, equal discrimination. It's really about power and prejudice mapped when they're together. And in today's context, that means white people being racist against people of color and not the reverse. There's no reverse racism against white people. Because it's at the individual level and there isn't power associated with that necessarily. No, I mean, at any level, individual, institutional, whatever. So, you know, we're talking about prejudice plus power, meaning that at any level. So, um, when we, yeah, that's, I guess like can, it can really be at any level and thinking about okay. when people are moving forward with something or, you know, something's happening. I think the reason this, the using those two words, prejudice plus power is so important is because so many other folks will be like, well, what about when I was discriminated against? Um, a white person will say that and you're like, okay, well, let's think of it, the whole context here, historical and current be clear that anyone can just like be mean to somebody else or discriminate against somebody else, but it's not actually racism. Right. Okay. I feel like that's an important distinction. You mentioned historical and current. And so I feel like from racism, I also want to talk about anti-blackness. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, Mm -hmm. right. Black folks, you know, the, the history, the origin story of the United States 
can start there. <laughs> like uh, it's a part of the origin story and obviously very closely related to, you know, native folks, oppression. And currently, and then in all of our laws and historically and currently looking at how black folks are just really targeted in a very, very dramatic way. We have all the data, all the numbers. And I think anti-blackness, you know, it's so insidious. It's like just in all of our minds. I mean, I just, if anyone grew up watching the show Cops, right? Like it was just like, it's everywhere. It's just in everything. And I think in particular for me as a white woman, the way white women have been really socialized to be afraid of like black men, for instance, um, it was just Emmett Till's birthday would have been his birthday a few days ago. Um, you know, he was lynched and murdered for um, being accused of whistling at a white woman. And, and she later came out and said he didn't ever do it. It goes deep. Yeah. yeah. So, so we have like really intense stories like that. And then there's all the everyday narratives around um, how anti-blackness is manifesting and is so insidious. Yeah. So I'm going to get through the definitions Let's get through the definitions and then we'll come back to some of these things. Okay. Uh, definitions are like books and books and. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, I know. This is all just like, here's just a little dollop. Yeah. What about the difference between equity and equality? Yeah, people are using that? those words interchangeably a lot. I think that it's so equality, everyone gets the same. There's a great image actually, and you can, you know, we can find it in your show notes of equity and equality, the bicycle image. So equality is everyone gets whatever size bike, like the same size bike. Equity is people get the bike that fits their body. Yeah. That works. That's what they need. I love that image because for a long time, the image was the one of the boxes and trying to look at a, I think it's meant to be a baseball game and there's different, you know, if everybody gets the same height box, a shorter person that doesn't give them the same access. But I love the the evolution to yeah. the bicycles versus different right. types of things. What about bias? Yeah, so we all have it. That's the important thing about bias. Like I'm not a neuroscientist, right? But it, this, so my definition will be like, you know, the most uh, scientific there. But this thing of like, everyone has it. And then I guess another added one is neuroplasticity is actually yes. a super hopeful term. Like, I know oh, it sounds like um, painful, but it's wonderful. It's a really good concept. I'll take it, right? Yes, neuroplasticity. I can learn something. I can learn something new. The kicker is really that we usually have feelings about that process. Feelings come up as I unlearn, like maybe shame or guilt or humiliation or defensiveness. And then feelings when I learn something new, like, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought or, you know, cognitive dissonance yeah, right. or this is hard or I don't know how to do it and now I'm embarrassed or whatever. Like, so all that stuff comes up around unlearning our bias and learning a new way of relating to people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to use the term white dominant culture as we go through this conversation. However, I feel like it's incumbent upon me as the host uh, to say that's a pretty conscious choice because I know that most listeners to this podcast are white and that's a comfier term than white supremacist culture. However, in the spirit of unlearning and relearning some things, can you help us understand the difference between white supremacist culture and white dominant culture? I don't think there is one. Okay. One just makes us feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think white supremacy as a, as a term has such close association with things like the Ku Klux Klan 
it's just almost impossible for us to decouple, to uncouple those things, whichever term is correct. So, okay, but there is no, I think importantly though, as we go forward, just knowing that if somebody uses that term to pay attention to what it, like really listen to your body, listen to the emotions, why does that make me feel a certain way? Those are really important questions to be asked. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And to welcome all the emotions. I, I just read this book called The Language of Emotions. Oh, nice. That is a fantastic book. Uh-huh. I think I've already talked about it before on the podcast. I can't remember. But basically the premise is like emotions are teachers. Yeah. Right? And our and in our culture, it's like, mm, anger is bad, sadness is bad. Those are negative. She's like, they're not negative. Like anger helps you set boundaries. Sadness grounds you. Do they kind of suck to go through? Heck yeah, they suck to go through. But you know, joy sounds so much more fun. But anyway, it's all good. All you know, all the emotions serve a purpose. Um, so let's not vilify some and, and not others. And in that the emotions are teachers, if it brings something up for you looking at you listeners right now, even though you can't see me looking at you, you know, be open to that and let it teach you something. Okay. So often we think of, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of your workshop title, the language of racism. And I think often we think of racist language as being obvious or overt, you know, things that we would never say, but it's much more nuanced than that. And the section description that you offered really gets at that. So I want to just read that so that listeners can hear, can hear what I mean. And then we'll, I'm hoping you can unpack for us, like why this workshop and why this is such an important topic. So the description said this experiential engagement will explore the spoken and unspoken cultural norms of communication as key pieces to advancing racial equity in yourself and your workplace. Passive aggressive communication and conflict aversion are based in WASP, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and middle-class norms and values, which communicates an unclear and watered-down sharing of information. This is significant because it is hard to manage for something if you cannot name it clearly for everyone to understand. Okay. Can you unpack that for us? And are there, do you have specific examples of this type of communication so that we can become aware of it? Because I think, you know, you were the one who used that, the, the first time I heard the expression, a fish doesn't know it's in water was from you. (laughs) And I think it's so helpful. So yeah, help us understand. Sure. Yeah. That, um, and I'll just name that that um, workshop I'm co-facilitating with Jody and Bury. So um, wonderful. Yeah. A local here in Seattle and does a lot of phenomenal work. You can follow her. Um, And we'll put her information in the show notes as well. Yeah. And so the other part of the the workshop, I don't know if it's in the title there explicitly, but it's about the language of racism and passive aggressive communication specifically is what we're focusing on. And so that was probably, since that's where we're going with this, I didn't really ask that question, but like uh, that would be a, a definition to ground ourselves into. So I'm going to read it. I pulled up my slide deck real quick so I can. Oh, good. I was going off of what's on your website. Yeah, great. Good, great. Yeah. So passive aggressive communication, indirect resistance to the demands or communications of others. Okay. Just because people are going to be hearing this indirect one word, not in space, direct two words, right? Cause yeah. that would be a totally different meaning. Absolutely. <laughs> indirect. Right. Yeah. Okay. Indirect. <laughs> all one word. Um, indirect resistance yes. and, and then an avoidance of direct communication. Okay. So the key pieces there that I want to just name, cause it, you know, then right now we're doing, you know, so that's passive aggressiveness 
being an indirect communicator is, is not the same thing, right? So passive aggressiveness, the opposite isn't just direct communication. That's one piece of it. Because the important part inside this definition is that you're really like indirect resistance and the avoidance part. Yeah, I was one. Yeah, it's the avoidance of conflict. Conflict, of, of, of clarity, of engagement. And so where we go, how we bring this together with the language of racism is really looking at the way the impact is on the other yeah. part. And in particular, when in passive aggressive communication is also almost normalized in a professional setting in particular, and I'll just keep, uh, keep things focused here in Seattle because mm-hmm. that's most of my time where we are known for our passive aggressive communication norm, our conflict aversion, our dancing around topics. And here's what I noticed about working with majority white organizations and companies. So it's, it's cross sector is that an organization's ability to engage in healthy conflict correlates to retaining staff of color. Oh, that's interesting. Because when people raise an issue, right? Yep. Don't shoot the messenger or shoot the messenger is what comes into play because people are not playing the game of passive aggressiveness. They're raising an issue. Talking about racism is an explicit issue, right? And when there's a commitment to staying comfortable, right, and passive aggressiveness is, is about preferencing someone's comfort over the content. Will you say that one more time? Passive-aggressive communication preferences the comfort over the content. The comfort yeah. of receiving the message. The comfort, yeah, of the receiver. Or of even the comfort of delivering something. Like, I'm not comfortable talking about this. I don't feel safe. Like, we'll hear all these things all the time, mm-hmm. particularly from white folks. And we do want to be, this is where we want to think about the spirit of equity. It matters who, who we're talking about. So if folks of color say they don't feel safe, that is a, whoa, everything needs to stop. And we have to change or do something different. When folk, when white folks say, I don't feel safe talking about something, I always want to check in, hmm, is white fragility at play? Like, what do you mean you don't feel safe? Is this just awkward? Or, you you know, like the exploration there and be like, hmm, maybe it's okay that you don't feel comfortable. And really distinguishing also between comfort and safety. White folks are safe. You know, and I do want to acknowledge like with white women, gender-based violence is real. And we're seeing a myriad of examples of white women thinking they can just call up our institutional um, criminal system to protect them on a whim, right? Central Park Karen, um, as my friend Jody Ann calls Amy Cooper, and all the other white women that are calling the manager wanting to be protected because they don't like what's happening, right? I know I just, there's a lot there that just got impact in that. Well, I think one of the words, the terms that I think is important and might not be familiar to everybody is white fragility. Yeah. And what that means. And I'll say, so as you're taking a sip of water, one of the most eye-opening pieces and also to offer concrete examples of how this shows up is, so I'm a teaching professor at University of Washington, um, and that comes with a really interesting combination of power and privilege. And one of the things is, is physical. I'm standing in front of the classroom, okay? And then I also, of course, do consulting. In all of these contexts, if I talk over somebody, no one's going to say a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most, the moments that I'm like, once I heard it, I was like, I don't like what? I, oh, oh shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I do that. And partially I'm, you know, I'm an impatient person. I do everything fast. And so, so differentiating between like, um, you know, whatever I'm talking to my daughter about like the grocery list and I'm like, let's move on. Okay. That's one. We're both white, but also that's different than me really having to realize like I'm doing that because I can. Mm -hmm. And then it may not be my intent to make whoever's on the receiving end feel a certain way. And yet the impact is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say that is one of the things that has influenced my teaching you know, from my work, which is ongoing and will be life work around white fragility and all of this is just, it seems so small, but talking over people is really, the impact of it is big, especially the cumulative impact. So that's one example of white fragility. Are there others that you can offer? Yeah. And it's, it's, it can be, um, internal or external. I mean, it can be out in in the world or just something you feel inside. And a key piece of white fragility is the inability for white folks to engage around race or racism, particularly theirs or what, you know, the the way we perpetrate racism and like the intolerance to even entertain that thought. So an antidote to white fragility is humility, right? And, And if we know that all people have bias and therefore no one, you know, we didn't escape learning all the things about anti-blackness. So that must mean that I have anti-black racism deep in the recesses of my mind, just the way we know, you know, learning and neurology works. Then I can be like, Oh, I'm really uncomfortable. Maybe this is like my white, my white fragility. Like I'm like having a hard time even sitting with this concept or someone telling me something about myself, right. As a white person, um, often it might be in the form of direct feedback for like to give you some feedback about how you're showing up, but usually it's not that way. It's not that gracious or mm, generous, right? Sure yeah. So I think it really is this thing of, sounds like you probably inside your example got some feedback about how you were as a professor who you also mapped with power, right? Your wife Do you know what's horrifying? Mm-hmm. I've never gotten that feedback. Mm-hmm. And why I say that's horrifying is yeah. because, you know, and I tend to have like, you know, pretty friendly, approachable, blah, blah, blah environment. I'm not like, I'm your professor. You know, I'm going to go talking. And even in that context, and I have many students of color, mm-hmm. I just didn't even see it. Like sure. the, the power, the power imbalance in that scenario is so vast yeah. that I never even got the feedback. Right. Right. Yeah. And, it, and in uh, academia, I don't, I don't, I think more so now, certainly. Yeah. Probably more so now. Mm-hmm. No, it's just a realizing of how much I do it. Sure, sure. One thing I want to say about Robin D'Angelo's body of work, which is her term white fragility and her book and all this stuff. So um, speaking of the power of words and folks that are writers, one thing that's happening right now is, is people are like going out and buying a ton of books or wanting resources. That's great. People should do that. And we want to think about where the money is going. Mm-hmm. So what I recommend to white folks in particular, but just I mean, anyone is go buy books or move your money to support black authors, right? Ichioma Oluo, uh, Ibrahim Handy, um, a bunch of others. Uh, and you can watch Robin D'Angelo's video clips mm-hmm. on the website. You can, there's lots of articles online, but there's something a little bit funny about her making a ton of money off of 
the book, which, you know, so that and it's mostly in this moment. I, I bought the book. And so let's not, I, mean, I don't sure. want to use words around this, but it's really like if everyone's throwing their money in different places, we really want it to go and map to, towards our values. So a way to combat anti-blackness is to really make sure um, that we're supporting black authors, right? Yeah. They'll get the learning of Robin DeAngelo, yeah. you know, from her, all of her work. Um, there's great videos and TED Talks and things like that. Okay. So that's the strategy and way we can support kind of like how the flow of information is mapped also to money. Mm-hmm. I would also say I'm learning a lot from Rachel Cargill. Yes. Absolutely. There's so many. We could say, I mean, oh, there's so much. But, but one of the things she does, which I think is brilliant, is she will take examples. So on Instagram, you know, she'll take examples of things that people have said to her on Instagram and she unpacks them line by line, word by word. And it's just, it's, and she has this beautiful, beautiful way of being like, okay, you know, I'm going to paraphrase. She doesn't quite say it like this, but like, well, that sucked. And that didn't go very well. And let's stop that. But I love you all. And like, you know, and she's, I just, I think her combination of things, mm-hmm. she's tough love. Yeah. Absolutely. And she, she does not pull punches yeah. and there's no malice in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it just creates an openness, which is, I think, remarkable yeah. to have. All right, let's see. So when I teach, so I teach marketing at the University of Washington, marketing for social impact. And I, on the first day of class, I think somewhat too, too many of the students surprised. On the first day of class, we talk about implicit bias and the importance of understanding implicit bias and your, your lived experience in the context of marketing. Because unless you're aware of it, you actually run the risk of really perpetuating white dominant paradigms. And, you know, again, I'll speak to personal experience. A couple of years ago, one of my students of color pointed out, and again, with so much kindness, so I'm like forever grateful to this student. She said, hey, I don't know if you noticed this, but there are every single one of the readings was a white author. Mm -hmm. Every single one. And I like, I get like emotional every time I talk about it. Because again, I just, I'm white and I didn't notice. And so then, uh, so, so I've been working on that one. It's, there's so little that that isn't written by white authors that is in the like approved marketing space. Um, so if you're looking for like textbooks or anything, which I don't even use textbooks, I stopped doing that, but just like how, how white dominant, even the literature around it and especially the academic literature is. So I rely now increasingly much more on what we refer to as gray literature, right? So articles, blog posts, podcasts, like videos, all sorts of that. It was really eye-opening because it meant that I was perpetuating it. Yeah. Right? Unwittingly. And this happens all the time. So you join me a few times um, on the first day of class after I go through some stuff. And you've done a beautiful job of facilitating an exercise that kind of helps students orient to what is implicit bias and how might that show up for them and what that might mean for marketing. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that because I think this idea of implicit bias is so important for marketing and yet a little bit mm, possibly uncomfortable and maybe a little nebulous. So I'm hoping you can make it a bit more concrete. Sure. Yeah. Um, A couple of things that are to frame this is that it's really hard to manage for something if you can't name it. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're starting with. And if we start with the premise that everyone is biased, so we all have it. No one escaped it. It's not like there's bad people somewhere else that have it, but I'm a good person. Although that trope is very present here in liberal white Seattle, right? 
And so if we all have bias, then that means we all, you know, also their racial bias. And if we can't name it, then we can't manage for it. Mm -hmm. And so part of the thing in your class is to bring awareness, shine a light on, okay, if this is true, how am I going to manage for this moving forward? Yeah. When that there's a responsibility in marketing and and, and as a human, but this piece, especially if you're, you're doing communications for your job or trying to represent ideas and people and things like that. And partly one of the exercises we do is looking at this um, idea, does the fish know it's wet, right? Like I'm just swimming around and whatever I grew up with was normal, wherever I was. And, and that really is, you know, what we all learned as young ones is here's what's normal. Some of us learned as young ones how to code switch. Here's what's normal at home. But when you leave home, you have to go do this. And so that's like assimilation. But some identities have been preferenced to have their normal be the normal, i.e. white dominant culture, right? It's been kind of carted out as what's normal. And not only just that some normals are, some normals like white normal are what should be everyone's normal. It's also right. That's how it's, uh, you know, propped up is that this is what's normal and it's what's right. So we see that in terms of like education. Here's what's studious. We see that in the professional world around professional standards and the fact that we just have to, had to have passed the Crown Act in California so that no one can actually be fired because of their hair, which primarily had been, was, is now to protect black women, right? Like those were, those were been the, the right. most um, yeah. cases have been about black women's hair. So the policing of what's normal and i.e. professional, and even in your hairstyle, and we, you know, there's been lots of those videos of, um, I'm thinking of one where um, the young man wanted to wrestle and the ref made him, right. well, in order to wrestle, the person, he had to have his dreads cut off. And then if that video is fascinating to, to really look at patriarchy was dictating what's normal and who did it, who did his bidding, who carried it out was this white woman. She went up and cut his, his dreads off of some black boy. And so that is, you know, there's a, that, that is like the narrative for all of white supremacy culture, white dominant culture, especially yeah. how that maps to um, nonprofits, right? Which mostly has white women delivering a lot of the work. Yeah, right? de- definitely. And in leadership positions until you get to the tippy top. Or until you get to large budgets or, you know, and that yeah, yeah. is interesting where, patriarchy and economics really like are at play there. Um, and the way sexism is limiting and that's, yeah. yeah. So most, many oppressions are at play. A lot of things are going on there. Yes. Well, well summarized. Yeah. I think the, the thing that I'm hoping listeners are hearing and I'm hoping their ears are still open because some of this, I just want to acknowledge may be new to folks, maybe hard to hear. So just hoping that, that people that you're keeping your ears open to it is that if you're white, that your normal is the normal. And so if we're trying to bridge, you know, if we're trying to bridge into as we're thinking about marketing, okay, so if that's the normal and that's off because it's not representative of all cultures, okay, how can we be proactive about that? Um, And that's the thing, you know, with my students, I'm like, you know, you have to be so proactive about this while also kind of hitting the mark in terms of target audience and messaging. And, you know, I just had Elizabeth Ralston on, um, and she's deaf. And so we were talking about marketing 
that's inclusive for all and thinking, you know, through that perspective. So, you know, like this is, it's a lot, it's a high bar. It's a high bar for sure. Now, speaking of high bars, I mean, not so much. I want to talk about the, about woke washing. Mm. So I don't know if you saw it really recently, there was a Harvard Business Review article. Okay. Called, and the title was woke washing your company won't cut it. Um, and this references actually an article that came from the Guardian, written by Arwa Mad- Madawa. I can say that right, ish. Um, a couple of years ago, actually. So it's kind of it's coming around. But anyway, they, they give some examples so of woke washing as being appropriating the language of social activism into marketing materials. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this happens all the time, right? Basically, companies saying they are in solidarity with, for instance, the Black, Black Lives Matter movement. And yet not having very many or, or any black leaders or very few even staff, things like that, you know, being committed to anti-racism, et cetera. So saying these things externally, while not really addressing internal power dynamics, imbalances, you know, and really having practices that perpetuate racism. So it's, it's akin to greenwashing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm curious because you do so much work on this internal piece, Right. And we talk on the show a lot, hard marketing for good is you have to have internal alignment before you can have excellent external execution. How, how do folks, you know, are you seeing a lot of woke washing just as a consumer, but with consumer with a specific perspective? And how can, how can organizations and companies do that, the internal work to get there? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not woke washing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at the core, all of this is about integrity. Right, like, am I walking my talk? Am I doing what I say I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. So having that as our internal guide, and then you know, obviously that can be at the company wide level. And the other thing that is a part of this is, you know, in particular here in this region where people just say the right words, but they don't know what they mean. People are inter- using equity and equality interchangeably, and they mean fundamentally different things. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, really, really dropping down, what's an example of equality in your organization internally, right? How you, how, what happens with the staff? One classic example is we all get the same PD money, professional development money. Now, what would, how would you do that in the spirit of equity? It might be like, oh, well, I have a master's. I've had tons of resource and access to advancement. Someone who hasn't had those opportunities should get more money. Oh, that's but a great one way way to people. Yeah. So, and what's important here is that people are just using terms and jargon. It's a great exercise to play like, how do we talk about this without using the latest terms and jargon in vernacular? And especially in a culture that is committed to pretense in such an intense way that we are here in our, our provincial Northwest. I grew up here, so I get. <laughs> to criticize. I grew up in Queen Anne and Ballard. I'm squarely a white Seattleite, a very waspy way, right? Yeah, I mean, East Coast listeners are going to hear this really differently because yeah, yeah. it is different. So, yeah. uh, Although waspiness is not, I mean, it's even more intense in the East Coast in some ways. I mean, depending on if we're, you know, we're talking about like classic New York or something, New York direct, right? Yeah, New York direct. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this thing of really like, what are you talking about? Like, what is the what that you're even talking about? Do you even know? Do you know when you say equity, you're committed to equity work, well, that would, that would probably look like reparations internally, right? That like, probably just made some listeners real uncomfy. 
Yeah, and so we don't even actually, we don't even have pay equality. You know, we have our, like, we don't actually have equality yet. Yeah, we're not even there. No, we have tons of gender pay gaps, which is just literally companies stealing money from their employees who happen to be socialized female, gendered female, right? But, and, and the way that looks, you know, in a racial context is there's not advancement, there's not opportunity to, you know, for positions of leadership. Right? So going back to your original question around um, woke washing or, you know, another way to think about it is, is performative allyship. Ooh. And I think what's important to think about this is that it's like arriving late to a party and then wanting to change the music. <laughs> Or wanting to wanting wanting like kudos for your arrival, right? And so um, it's okay if you're late. It's okay if you're like, gosh, like I, you know, this is, you know, everyone is at a different place in their journey, and all of that is okay. And what's really really useful is, is to have humility, and that doesn't mean throwing yourself under the bus. It doesn't mean being a doormat. Like I'm not, you know, this isn't about the shame spiral. Is not abuse. Feelings are meant to be felt. There's nothing to do but feel them. But you don't have to stay there. Right. Right. Shame and guilt can be helpful motivators to be like, whoa. And we want to be clear about when you you think someone's shaming you versus when you have feelings of being ashamed, of feeling rise up. Those are those are different things. Those are different. And often naming is equated with blaming. Right? So naming the dynamic, naming the racism is experienced and heard by white folks as you're blaming me. Versus, well, actually, I'm just naming that racism is in existence. And you might have feelings of shame that come up of like, oh, my God, I'm ashamed that that's happening. I'm ashamed that I'm just now learning this. I didn't know it or I didn't see it. I had no idea. Like your example with um, both of your examples, right? Yeah. Um, like, and it's just, you know, so all that stuff, like the emotional intelligence of this is like a core competency. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awareness. Oh, I'm having all these feelings. Oh, I'm really triggered. And is something bad happening or am I just having a whole bunch of feelings? And that is, can be very confusing when you're accustomed to privilege. And the, feel, the feelings are meant to be like clouds. Right, right. Constantly shifting, constantly moving. We don't accuse like different types of clouds of being good or bad, right? <laughs> we don't judge the clouds for their shape. They just serve different purposes. Yeah. But yeah. I think that I, I want to underscore Philister's point about the conflating of naming and blaming and how important it's, I mean, it really sounds like for, for quite a while, I think we've been hearing in terms of organizational development, you know, which feeds right into marketing in a lot of different ways, the need for higher emotional intelligence and how much more important that is going to be going forward. And then, then also a piece, you know, we're just, you know, c- coming out of a fleeting moment, it would seem of there were, there were protests, you know, after George Floyd was killed and already like three months mm-hmm. after that, nope, two months, that's already kind of fading a little bit. So, and there was all, you know, all these companies coming out with their statements of solidarity and all the rest of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things I really appreciated in that Harvard Business Review article um, about woke washing is them saying, that's great. And, and I'm going to paraphrase, they did not say it this way. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. And if you treat it like a sprint, you're all out of steam and you're not going to get to the finish line if it's a marathon. And I mentioned that partially because there is a sequencing of events to your point about this is about integrity. So if the internal work hasn't happened, that external statement is 
super great. And maybe the, the, the way in which you do it is part of the internal work around integrity. But a lot of them felt like they were very quickly slapdash together and, and thrown out there. Yeah, I mean, it was clear with lots of folks, it was more about not wanting to be seen having not made one. Yes. Right? Um, my work with middle school girls greatly informs a lot of my work with this around equity. Oh, that's interesting. FOMO. I have fear of missing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be seen. I want to be the last one arriving to the party because then I'm not cool. Like, whatever. So basically, it's about not <laughs> based, but it's it's like fear or insecurities or, you know, just trying to be seen as doing the right thing without actually doing it. Yeah. I mean, we have so many examples of this that, that, that predate any of this. I mean, let's see, Audi's equal pay for equal work, the Super Bowl ad from a couple of years ago. And then it turned out they didn't have a single woman on their leadership team. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, this list goes on Pepsi and the Kendall Jenner ad. And then there's sort of lesser known ones that are a bit more poignant. I'm thinking of the founder and CEO of um, Feminist Apparel, who's a man, Alan Martifel. Admitting to a history of abusing women, the female employees then said, you should resign. And instead of resigning, he fired them all. Feminist apparel, right? Like this is, <laughs> so you're not, that's not, that's not being an integrity. If there was any question about that. And then even Nike, right? Which, you know, ran the Colin Kaepernick ads. And then it came out that less than 10% of its 300 plus vice presidents-ish worldwide were black. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, Nike, I would say they're doing the work. They keep, you know, trying. And this is, it's hard and it's complicated, but just, just slapdashing off the statement isn't doing the work necessarily. And I think on a podcast about marketing and so, so much of marketing is external messaging and proclamations, announcements and statements. I just feel like that's really important to say. It is. And it, it, what's tricky or just complicated as well is um, we also can't wait for everyone to have an aha moment. Mm. Say more about that, Blair. Yeah, well, reading books is phenomenal. We need to do that. We need to unlearn. We need to process. We need to talk about stuff. We need to go to trainings. And basically, this moment is calling for like enough with that. There has to be action. People are, are begging to not be murdered. So um, we can't wait for each person to feel comfortable and relaxed enough and have an aha about their alignment with racial equity or their commitment to racial equity. I'm talking about white folks. I mean, it just, the, the stakes are too high. And so, 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 so there's both like, you need to do the internal work and we can't wait. We don't, we don't, you don't, don't wait to try things until everyone has arrived at a certain critical mass of, of commitment because we could just keep waiting. Right. Similar to think about like the labor movement, like, yeah. But the boss didn't just give people their rights because they were like, we're like, ah, I had to change a heart, <laughs> right? Yeah. The people had to fight really hard and like, and still that's, I mean, that's a continued thing with, with, you know, workers' rights anyway now. So that's what I mean by there's, there is a impatience because um, things like really came to a head recently, partly because of long, long movement work that people have been preparing and doing yes. and doing on for a long, long, long time. Um, particularly communities of color have been leading movement work for, for a really long time. Um, and this moment really kind of was able to galvanize enough people. And I think with statements, you know, the best ones I've seen are, we are new to this. Yes. Like acknowledge, like that's an integral thing to say is we're new. 
we have not centered racial equity and that was a mistake. And now we're going to move forward and try to figure out how to do it. Yep. And that gets back to your point about humility. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Humility. Marketing so much is in an institutional context. And I think that there are a variety of factors around organizational dynamics that, you know, we've talked about. And so I want to transition here to make sure that we touch on kind of the individual opportunity around pushing some of these issues forward, which has to do with consumerism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the, on the other side of marketing is always a consumer or a client or a donor or a volunteer or whoever it may be, but there's an individual there. And, you know, I just, I think that there's so much opportunity now and millennials and zoomers are definitely leading the charge on, on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're demanding, uh, more, uh, accountability and, and they're, they're putting their money where their mouth is to, to a great extent. Um, so a little bit of this is, is generational, but I guess just, you know, and also acknowledging that yes, some of this can be really overwhelming and yet it is urgent. And so as individuals, and you know, I don't, listeners are going to be in all sorts of different organizational contexts and they're going to have this sense of personal agency around every single time they make a purchasing decision. So a little bit of a call to action around that. But I would love, your, you know, your thoughts on the importance of the consumer side of things versus the organizational and institutional side of things that we've been talking about. Emma. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like one key aspect around thinking about my individual actions or contribution is knowing my significance. Mm-hmm. Right? So for everyone to actually really get in touch with their significance, what we've been seeing the past few months is enough people feeling like they wanted to contribute in a you know critical mass type of way, you know protests and lots of other organizing, and all of that really requires folks to know that you matter. Like over a third of people didn't vote in 2016 election for lots of reasons. It might not have been connected to them, them knowing their significance. It might have had to do with literally voter resist. Um, what's the word? Keep people from voting. Suppression. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if, you know, really, especially as I think about power with, not power over, mm-hmm. it's like the sentiment I work with white women a lot on. And the first part invites us to really know our power. Then it's easy to share power. Once, once I'm clear on my power, I'm, 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 my significance on the planet is not related to how helpful I am or how, how, how well-liked I am, right? And so then I can really be in alignment with, right action with my values. Yeah. Moving from with right action, you're into right action in right relationship and anchoring all this into relationship. This isn't a solo thing, being connected, connected to myself, connected mm-hmm. to each other. I mean, that's what is really, um, that's the intrinsic motivation for me and what I try to invite other white folks into. There has to be an intrinsic motivation because otherwise this works too hard. You're going to feel too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and the, the what's in it for me is I get my humanity, more access to my humanity. So I, I actually, the last question, which you just walked into that I, um, I'm going to you, you segue right into last question I ask every guest is based on the words, inspiration and motivation, etymological root we'll circle, come full circle. We'll go back to that of inspiration has to do with breathing in. So breath in and motivation has to do with taking action. So we need both breath. We need breath to take action. And you were speaking to this, but what inspires you and what keeps you motivated to do this work that can be tough work? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll kind of map two questions together a little bit. You know, if enough people, if we all moved our money where our, our values are, and what's hopeful to me is like really knowing that a lot of people can make a big difference with our individual actions, right? So, you know, intentionalist.com is a great place to go and figure out, hey, I want to buy from black or, you know, POC owned or women owned businesses and like really move our money to match our values. Um, for organizations or companies, you open up the budget and, and find what people value based on where they put their money, right? I mean, that's true for humans too, but also just connecting it to, to organizations. And so um, I think that kind of bridging off of if, if I'm really connected to my significance and also my influence, my sphere of influence, not like being an influencer, not like that way of the term, but just like someone that interacts with another human, then we really can invite people into liberation work, right? Uh, and I think especially for white folks where there's just, there's a disconnect. And so part of this is connection, connection to myself and, and re a reconnection to information that I have been cut off of because of privilege, right? Like that's where again, bias and blinders come up. I don't, I didn't even know that there was something else that I'm missing here, Yeah, you know? So, you know, like if everyone moved their money into black owned banks, for instance, that would be huge, right? Or just really, you know, so uh, there's a lot here, individual and small micro moments, you know, certainly how you interact with another human, but also huge, large scale. Yeah. I mean, um, to go back to your example as well of where you buy your books yeah, and buying from black owned bookstores and yes, it's more complicated than ordering from Amazon. And I, you know, I'm not judging if somebody does that, just if you're interested Right. In these micro moments, in these and micro that, actions, because they add up. We do. And those are the, it's like, there's a lot of like the kind of non-sexy work of, <laughs> yeah. of liberation or, or racial work. There's that moment where you're like, oh, I'll order from this thing. I'll take longer. And blah, blah, blah. it's not the like, I'm out at a protest. I mean, it can be, but that that's one version. Or it's not what I post on my Instagram. It's all these little moments of really the fabric of how you live your life. And is each moment is an invitation to be in alignment with your values and integrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So liberation work ain't sexy. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Not all of it. Not all of it. Super sexy. Some of it's really hot, hot and steaming fun and not all of it. <laughs> that's, that's great. It's a great, a great place to end. I do want to encourage listeners. We will put in the two, you know, do the work. Obviously, I'm just hoping nobody heard like, oh, well, I don't have to do the work. What Flora was saying is do the work, yes, so that you can take action in a way that is in alignment with your integrity and who you are because every single one of you matters. And I really hope that you'll hear that. I really love, Flora, your invitation to think about significance and your significance and, and then when mapping that uh, to all of this work. And then for those of you that are doing the marketing and communications, just becoming uh, you know, ever more attentive to the language you're using, the lenses, this idea of implicit bias, it's also so important. It's so important. So thank you, Fleur, for being here. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with this. Like I said, we'll put the resources in the show notes. Let's all keep learning and keep doing. Do good, be well, and we will see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.